Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, folks. I just want to flag that in today's episode, there's a particularly graphic story of a child being murdered after the ad break at 27 minutes, which ends at the 33-minute mark. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Tseng, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Fever Dreams listeners, today we enter week two of the post-Will Summer order, but I have to start off this episode on a bit of an earnest note. We got some indicators and some emails and some social media posts that told us that way too many of you took our news about anti-Will Summer coup way too seriously. We are here to tell you today that we were mostly kidding around. Will Summer will be returning to the show soon. Please don't abandon it in droves, Will Summer fanatics out there. But for the time being, you're going to have to settle for me keeping his seat warm, along with our beloved Daily Beast colleague, reporter Kelly Weil. Kelly, say hi. Hi. Does this mean I have to stop ruthlessly consolidating power in Will's absence? No, no, I don't think so. Continue away. And for this episode, we'd also like to introduce listeners to a third co-host in Will's absence. Please welcome one of our favorite guests of a past episode, editor and co-founder of Defector, David Roth. David, how's it going? Hi, good. And I also would like to reassure listeners, as you did earlier, that as of now, I am in charge at the podcast. We There's a steady hand on the tiller, and we're going we're gonna to move forward. Excellent. Excellent. And before we get into it, you host your own podcast through Stitcher at Defector. I do. I'm in charge of a lot of podcasts, by which I mean I'm the sort of less assertive party on a bunch of different podcasts. Okay. You are the El Jefe of numerous American podcasts. Yeah. that's I'm generally referred to as the dean of the American podcasting movement. Uh, but tell our listeners a little bit about your other pod. And we at Fever Dreams obviously highly encourage you to subscribe. It's great. Oh, yeah. Thank you. The other pod is The Distraction, which I do with Drew McGarry. We did a podcast together back at Deadspin when we were at Deadspin. But now that everyone who is at Deadspin is at Defector, or more or less everyone, we just sort of keep on doing it there. So it's there's some sports stuff and then there's some non-sports stuff. It's all united by the fact that it's generally pretty stupid, but like not in a bad way, in like a like a likable way, the way that like a Australian shepherd, for instance, could be described that way. <laughs> Give our listeners a preview of what they can find at your defector pod. The long hamburger. What is that? 
The long hamburger was something that we've discussed as a team. I don't feel like this story is is over yet. It's not a one-day thing. The new stadium that the Rams are going to be playing in in Los Angeles announced a bunch of sort of stadium foods and prices, and then they had their first preseason game. And as is generally an NFL tradition, people just took photos of the hideous stuff that they paid $18.95 for at the NFL game. But the big innovation that the Rams seem to have brought forth, it's a, a cheeseburger hoagie, whatever they're calling it. It's sort of hard, or cheeseburger sub, I guess is the term that they use. But it's just basically like a long... Like if you imagine like a a mass of burger meat the size of like a sofa. So in like sort of a shawarma type technique, a plank is sawn off of it, placed onto an untoasted hero bun coated with a half an inch thick American cheese, three pickles, and that can be yours for $20. I feel like that's just stealing Subway Valor. It really has the same sort of energy, like and especially the same sort of energy as the Subway, like the veggie patty that you can get oh, there. Oh, hell yes. Absolutely. I, I love just a congealed patty of like maybe some peas and like some cornstarch. It's my yes. go-to. And unironically, it is it's my al- go-to. It's always good when you can like <laughs> spot little bits of veggie solids in there and you're like, that's part of a chickpea. You know it's real. The veggie sandwich that they have there is sort of the same. The photos of it were really horrifying, and we were all sort of goofing on that yesterday. One of them, I guess the photo of the veggie version of the burger I just described is basically what Kelly just said, but with a little bit of ketchup on it. The meat version of it appears to have sort of like coffin flopped entirely through the bottom bun. It's just like the patty and a top bun resting on a plate, and it is harrowing is the word for it. Like, it's not a food stuff that should be permitted to exist. Still more, two more preseason games. I mean, like, there's no telling how delicious they might make it by the time we get to games that count. Okay, be straight with our audience. Is this a food podcast? Sort of. Yeah, Distraction is like a food podcast. It's sort of an aging person's podcast. And then we do also talk about sports stuff of the day. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff about, you know, like Drew is a, is a person of child, so he'll talk about that. I am not. Well, now I'm trying to figure out if this is sponsored content on your part, because I really want a long hamburger right now. This was the problem. When you do a post like this, I think of it as service journalism in kind of the classic sense, like just being like, look out, there's a new shape of hamburger out there, so be careful. That's to help readers. And then there's this second wave of, and I don't take this personally, Swin, but like actual perverts who like see the photo. <laughs> Photos or hear this thing described and are like, I want to put it in my mouth. <laughs> I'm concerned about that mentality. It's not the thing that worries me most about where we are as a culture, but I saw a lot of that yesterday. I saw people being like, I would eat the long burger and I vote. How are you going to do a post like that? <laughs> well, to talk about something that is disturbingly related to that, I want to get into, before we talk about our usual online kookery, with Afghanistan currently imploding, we have to talk about how it really feels like we're reverting back to a strange place that American culture was back in the years 2001 and 2003, a truly savage and unique time in American life. And in so many ways, we're doing that teenage and childhood period of our lives over again, as accentuated by certain aspects like the current ongoing withdrawal from Afghanistan and the collapse of their government there, except we have to do it all over again, filtered through two decades of irreparably broken discourse, and also in the shadow of a Donald Trump presidency, where people like Trump are still in positions of influence in the actual politics and discourse in America, and just how perverse this feels. David, you've been ruminating quite a bit on this topic. Tell us how thunderously depressing it has been for you 
over the past few days, because clearly in this entire situation, the three of us are the real victims in this ongoing crisis. Yeah, let's not forget who's really suffering here, which is the people reading the posts. But it's been just sort of deranging, even by the standards of of normal deranging experiences of like just that in this case, I think the part of it that I was struck by yesterday, I mean, this is like all of this has happened extremely quickly. And seeing not just like sort of like the usual type of bad faithy type arguments like Tom Cotton trying to say that the Taliban won because the United States Army is too into like woke virtue signaling or whatever. Oh, God. Okay, I have to read that. Oh, it's a good post. Yeah, this was a few days ago. This defines the Republican Party's current state. And by current state, I mean the week to week state of play better than anything I've seen recently, better than anything from Matt Gates or Donald Trump or anybody like that. Okay, Tom Cotton tweeted. It's clear President Biden and his Department of Defense have been more concerned with critical race theory and other woke policies than planning an orderly withdrawal from Afghanistan, end quote. It doesn't get any clearer than that. I'll tell you one thing about Joe Biden and critical race theory that I know to be true, which is that he definitely knows what it is. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a place where we can start common ground. Everyone knows that Joe Biden knows what critical race theory is, talks about it often and approvingly, and has been dedicated to it in a way that he has not been dedicated to pursuing foreign policy goals. That sort of post, as again, as delightful as it is, like it is truly like the most crystalline expression of Tom Cotton brain imagined. It's on the ceiling of a cathedral. It is art. He's done some really excellent work just like trying to to make everything that's happening about the three things that he likes to talk about. He had some really good stuff before the Olympics. What are those three things? Bloodlust... What are the other two? China. Basically, like his things are like setting up a war with about Taiwan and then also, yeah, trying to get on TV. But yes, those those sorts of deals. But in that case, it's like that's just Tom Cotton doing what Tom Cotton does. You know, like, would you ask the sun not to shine? Right. Like, I mean, it's just like how he's going to be. The challenge for me with it was that so much of the the sort of like more in sorrow than in anger stuff about like the tragedy of Afghanistan and our withdrawal or whatever was written by the very same people that I remember as like barely sentient 22 year old problem drinker when all this stuff was happening the first time around. Like it's the same fucking guys, pardon my language, but it's like David Frum again, like Mark Tyson again, like they never left. They just have to dig it out of drafts. Like they can do that way quicker than absolutely can generate yeah. new thoughts. And some of these people, it is not an exaggeration to say that this is all your fucking fault, or at least the people you were directly serving and working for at the time. This is your fault. This is on you. And now you want to blame, I don't know, critical race theory and the woke generals. Right. (laughs) Our classic problem, these four star generals like Robin D'Angelo training after Robin D'Angelo training all day long. Think about true movements, guys. But the in this case, like with the the way that like that sort of tenor, the idea of like, I mean, obviously, this was a disgrace. I mean, it's a historic crime to do for 20 years what we were doing in Afghanistan. The idea that the people that, as you said, orchestrated it and sold it can then be there at the end of it without any insight or remorse and still be permitted the platform to kind of like, not just like argue for its ongoing sort of like prosecution, which It's like there's a little bit of that, but then there's also more of this like, obviously, it didn't work. Of course, none of us knows why that happened or how it could possibly have been permitted not to work, but it's tragic. And I join you in thinking that it was bad. Sincerely, like man who invented the phrase that was used to sell the war that happened. And I just don't know, like there's something really, 
it's like deranging is the term I used for that. I guess it's just like knowing that this happened without any repercussion, knowing that these guys are still permitted to do that function in polite society. And then also just in general are accorded the status as experts strictly because they're the people that invented the fuck up in question is really like, it's a lot to just sort of like walk around with that knowledge and like think about politics or think about you're reminded of who is making these decisions and how abstracted and sort of uninterested they are in the consequences of them. I feel like there are two currents of this, right? There's the, oh, hand wringing, how could this have happened? And then there are the people who are already on to step two of this, which is, yes, it's all very sad that this collapsed. Now we cannot let any refugees into the country. And I feel like those two sides are just encroaching little Venn diagram upon each other. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also weird to see that because like those will appear in the same statement. And so it's this idea of kind of like, you can tell which one is a performance and which one is an actual deeply held belief, but but seeing them that close together, that's what I, I'm struggling to find the words for it. That sort of deranging feeling of being like lied to in a way that is very obvious, like almost insultingly obvious. And then instantly having somebody who is like not just more cynical, but like not a smart person in many cases, then try to like spin you on like getting you on their side of things, either about like filibustering about the woke generals or the idea of being like, it's tragic what happened to that country whose residents are all terrorists in waiting and cannot be permitted to enter your neighborhood. Every pro-Trump Republican congressman who openly identifies as a member of the All Lives Matter movement has already sent out a statement saying like, okay, we need, we essentially need to leave these people to die. Because otherwise, like, could we really have been said to win the war then? The idea that somehow it's, it's like more dangerous. I mean, that's the part of it that like, really sort of brings home the failure of this is that like that, I mean, Afghanistan, I think less so than Iraq, but in both of those cases, these wars were fought because for these like weird, like inchoate reasons of anxiety and posturing and like some sort of, you know, abstracted geopolitical ambition or whatever. And like, so that's happened for my entire adult life. And here we are at the other end of it. And it's the same anxieties. It's the same the idea that somehow all of this is then like we have to continue fighting them there because otherwise the alternative is to fight them here and stuff like that. Like it brings home the failure of it, but it also is like what a colossal failure of imagination that all is that they never even bothered to find a more compelling lie. Right. And when you talk about the failure of imagination, I mean, you're seeing the same tropes rolled out again. This morning, I was seeing someone talking about, well, this is going to encourage more 9-11 style attacks on the homeland. And it's like, you got to wrap this up. <laughs> 20 year cycle. It's people remember at this point. Not even your own Republican voters are buying that anymore. Even if you truly believe it on a policy level, they have moved on. Donald Trump gave them permission to. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the really sort of another sort of like element of this that's like been really kind of hard to to process is knowing that like there's plenty to take issue with in terms of like how this has been like implemented in terms of are we actually going to be able to get people out should be allowed out and all that. And like, I don't know that I've seen much that inspires a great deal of faith there yet. But there is like, more or less everybody agrees that this has to end. And yet, like, seeing the, like, the way that, like, elite opinion is just still kind of, like, 
going in like as represented by the people issuing these statements, but then also by like the brand name types on cable news and on opinion pages and stuff. They're still pushing that same line, even though like public opinion has slipped wildly out of sync with it. It's like if you criticize occupation there, it's the question is, well, how would you execute, you know, this perfect 20 point process? And how would you work the visa system? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not an expert. I just wouldn't be there. Right. And I mean, that's the other part of it, too, the Trump element that like he is kind of, as Swin says, like just sort of haunting this whole thing, like issuing his little encyclicals on like from the desk of Donald Trump note note cards (laughs) from Florida. And they're all like, you know, I'll tell you one thing, like if I was in charge, it wouldn't happen this way. And it's like, yeah, with the famous attention to detail and empathy that defined (laughs) your administration, (laughs) I'm sure that you would have made sure that this went some other way. That's the sort of the hard part with any of this is that like nobody really seems to care very much like we know like how they would like to be seen and like that's the part of it that you can sort of like parse out from the texts and the or at least a little bit of truth that you can extract from a lot of the dishonesty of it i don't know that I see any evidence that anybody takes this remotely seriously. And I guess that's always been true. It's just like, it's upsetting, (laughs) to say the least. Former President Trump and his political operation, they are taking this seriously, but I think only so much in the sense that they're taking it seriously as a fundraising ploy. They have already been hitting up donors and blasting out texts and emails to donors and Trump's political supporters fundraising off of this, saying that, stand with me, Biden should resign, this shit would not be happening on my watch. And that, to me, more than anything else over the past few days of what is going on in the upper echelons of the Republican Party gives away the game. It's now a fundraising ploy to them. And it doesn't matter that Trump was one of the loudest voices in the country, even though he was incompetent and lazy and mentally incongruous about it, for even speedier withdrawal than what Biden did. It doesn't matter. This is a time for score settling and dunking for him and guys like him. And that just underscores way more of the perversity of this than I'm willing to mentally process at this moment. The famed third part of the first is tragedy, then is farce thing, which is that eventually all of every major national crime will eventually be repeated as like an email blast with a subject heading that's like, David, I'm dying. And then you have to open it. And it's like, (laughs) for you to buy this t-shirt that says Joe Biden must resign. (laughs) Kelly, I wanted to talk a little bit about some reporting that you've been doing of late on the Proud Boys, some America's sweethearts, we call them, and their sort of evolution into like clout goblin, just like chasing whatever reactionary movement is in the streets at that moment. Like they seem to have uh, caught on with anti-vaxxers, which at the very least sounds like a fun party to attend. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's just snowballing of cool reactionary ideas. Love it. We'd love to see it. Maybe you've seen this in your hometown because it happened in mine. We've got parents or other grown adults with or without children who are upset about face masks in schools. And they have just blown up these school board meetings to protest masks and vaccines. But a lot of these meetings are more than just your loudest neighbor popping off because they've become this rich mingling ground for radical personalities like members of the Proud Boys. And if our listeners are blissfully unaware, they are those fellows who wear black and yellow shirts um, and go punching the first person who looks at them funny and occasionally breaking into the U.S. Capitol. Or at least trying to punch them. I mean, yeah, yeah. There's wonderful uh, wealth of material 
online videos of swings and misses, but you throw enough punches, some are going to land. That is one of the recruiting pitches. And the undersold Proud Boy pitch is lots of cocaine. Wouldn't want to back that up in court, but uh, (laughs) that's the rumor. Anyway, so there was a school board meeting in Florida with these Proud Boys standing out on the road. They had turned some bed sheets into a makeshift banner And they had the Proud Boy logo on it and like some slogan like, unmask our children. And I just feel like if even if you are an anti-mask parent, you're driving into a school board meeting to protest masks, I wouldn't really want to feel like that guy is on my side. Like our children? Like, buddy. (laughs) Point to your child. Yeah, who's the we here? I do understand the value of public meetings, but at the same time, I feel like there should sort of be some, I have a child in this district threshold before you show up in a paramilitary group uniform. Yeah. I think there's been, I was sort of marveling at that. There was Shelby County in Tennessee has been like, it's somehow become like ground zero for like every like clout chasing reactionary celebrity has moved to Nashville. Like, I guess the idea is like, so my friend once said that everybody wants to own the libs until it's time to go out for dinner. Like they want to go to a city. <laughs> they want to go someplace where there's like good food and like city stuff, but also where like everyone's Republican. But seeing these school board meetings with like Clay Travis and like all these other sort of like guys that you see get quote tweeted on Twitter a lot as being like this fucking guy. Like those dudes all getting up and speaking at these school board meetings, like these are the most sending your children to private school individuals that the society that we live in has ever produced. Oh, not even Matt Walsh. Matt Walsh is the one where I didn't even want to say his name. It's like Candyman. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. But no, I mean, an outspoken advocate of homeschooling your children showing up at school board meetings saying that they should block a mask mandate because it infringes on his rights. Your kids don't go here. Yeah, that's all, all of these guys lined up around the block for box seats to the original run of Hamilton. And now they want to run out there and declare themselves the avatar of all that is allegedly manly and tell you why your kids shouldn't do what public health officials recommend that they do. The bit of it that I feel especially bad about is like the people that are on these school boards, which is like, that's not like a job that you get. And then you're like, I made it like at the very least, I'll never have to worry about money again the rest of my life. Like that is like people run for that position because they like care for good or bad reasons about like educating the kids in their district. 70%, I guess it's like nationwide of parents are like very much in favor of mask mandates for kids because they don't want their kids to get sick. And yet like the 30% that is not like that is like the noisiest, most like implacable and disagreeable people that again that our culture has produced and so like they just have to sit there and take it at least when it was like tea party guys yelling at congressmen in like whatever 2009 it was like they were yelling at congressmen they weren't yelling at somebody that's like doing this after they worked a job all day and they're sitting there for what is usually like a quiet comment hour and instead they have to literally listen to matt walsh talk right you run for school board to like make some budgetary changes about sports boosters or whatever and now you're on a conservative podcast and turned into some meme because you made a face or something during a comment. That sucks. So with the Proud Boy element of it, is this just sort of like them going where the noise is? Because I feel like that's like generally the been the move of that like 
like alt-right is like three terms ago, but it's just basically like you go where the disagreeable people are and you try to, to make some inroads. It's exactly what they did like four months ago with critical race theory, right? They would um, just gin up controversy about something that wasn't happening or wasn't a big deal, show up at school board meetings where they don't have children. There's one great one where this guy was wearing this shirt said like, throw communists out of helicopters. And then someone gave a speech saying that everyone in the school board was a communist. They're clout goblins is a great term for them because they're just showing up where it's the likeliest that someone is going to spout off. Kelly, you've pointed out before that one of the weirdest instances of a school board freak out recently actually didn't appear to have anything to do with the Proud Boys. No, this was, I was talking about instances where people don't have children at the school. Props to them. This appears to be an organic parent-led freak out. This is in North Carolina, I believe in Madison Cawthorn's district because he spoke at this meeting early this month, I believe, a couple weeks ago. And this meeting of parents was so noisy that school board officials who, as we say, are people doing this after work, they're not really here to quell a riot. They said, enough, like we're bouncing, we'll pick this up later. The parents decided to interpret their departure as like abdicating the throne. And they said that they were overthrowing the school board, took a piece of loose leaf paper and signed their names as like the new board and the witnesses. It was like, just like, like a declaration sob- of independence. <laughs> yeah, pure sob sit. Like just, I'm waiting for them to start talking about the gold tassels on the flag. I was going to say, like this is under maritime law, the <laughs> school board junta is now in charge. <laughs> yes, overthrowing the corporate United States and its buncombe County School District. It's like absolute nuts. And these are people with children in the district. I have a modest proposal on this. Give them the school board, those exact same group of people for like a week and a half or a fortnight, maybe. Just give it to them and see what happens. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that they're necessarily ready for the volume of extremely boring conference calls. They're not going to do anything with it. They're just going to make appearances on Tucker Carlson tonight. And that's it. This is like a broader trend in like that type of conservative politics is that like the dogs keep catching the cars that like Lauren Boebert's like stuck with that fucking seat for as long as she wants it. You know, like Marjorie Taylor <laughs> Greene, it's the same thing. They don't, they're not going to govern. They're just there to post or whatever. But it's still the sort of thing where like that, the idea of being like, we need to take power and then you do it. And you're kind of like, oh, wait, this actually sucks. I liked it way more when I could just yell with my buddy. Yeah, because running for office right now is the best way to like get a blue check on Twitter or something or get like some tiny little book deal that you leverage into a podcast. Right. Like it's step one and a half and step two and a half of turning U.S. Congress into like the New Hampshire state legislature, which has (laughs) been this for ages. Like there's so many people on there. It's like if you have a cousin in New Hampshire, there's a good chance he or she is in the state legislature ranting about critical race theory. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you do not want to hear the very graphic story of the QAnon child murder, please skip ahead to minute 33. Our guest today is longtime friend of the show, Mr. Jared Holt, a resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab. He also hosts the show, Shitpost Podcast, which covers the intersection of tech culture and politics today. At the Atlantic Council and elsewhere, Jared has for years dissected and delved into the lion's den of online disinformation and political extremism, and has emerged, to his credit, as one of the topic's eminent experts and doomsayers. You can follow Jared at Jared L. Holt at Twitter.com, and we strongly encourage you to listen to and subscribe to his podcast, Shitpost. Jared, welcome to Fever Dreams. Oh man, that's a hell of an intro. I hope I can live up to it, but thanks for having me. Well, to offset the generousness of the intro, because we do exist on competing pods, we will crush your podcast in the end. This is going to be great for content, and if our podcast can interlock in some sort of existential war, I, this has to be a net benefit, right? It'll be Dragon Ball Z meets some of the Pokemon. I mean, I will lose eventually, but <laughs> nonetheless. I don't you've got a pretty, like, if your Stan army is more dedicated than the Fever Dream Stan army, I think you've got a good shot. That's true. What do we call Jared's Stan army? Is it like the Holt fam, the Holties? The Viet Holt. <laughs> i mean i'm allowed to say this because she can't hear me and won't hear this podcast but i made a joke about having a fan base of my own to my wife while we were away and she said that i could never say that i would have a group of fans called the davy navy that would support me <laughs> maybe that'll make the final show maybe it won't i just know that now i said it i i've, I've spoken the words the, sp- the spell is gone that is getting in the final cut. So, Jared, you've been following the QAnon movement for far too many years now. And sometimes we poke fun at it, but there is something truly horrific that happened, I believe, last week in Mexico with an American QAnon fan. Can you tell me what's up with that? Yeah. So last week we learned some details about this guy. His name's Matthew Coleman. He's like 40 years old from Santa Barbara, California, owns a surf school there. Pretty innocuous seeming guy, right? But things started to go a bit south in his life. According to some local news reporting, the wife of Matthew Coleman called the police after he suddenly took off with their children as they were packing to go camping. And after not hearing from them for a day or so, officially filed a missing persons report. According to the criminal complaint that would later come out, his wife was worried because he didn't tell her where he was taking his kids and he didn't have a car seat for the kids. She said they hadn't gotten into any kind of arguments and she didn't think that Matthew Coleman was going to harm their children, but he wasn't answering his phone and she was worried. Unfortunately, that you know, kind of early sense that she had would not prove to be the correct one. When she reached out, a law enforcement officer suggested they use the Find My iPhone feature, and she agreed. That's how they figured out that Matthew Coleman had taken their children to Rosarito, Mexico, which is a beach resort town that's on the western side of Mexico and just south of the U.S.-Mexico border. The FBI then put out a watch to the port of entry that they believed Matthew Coleman would need to use to re-enter the United States as he went home, and Lo and behold, they guessed correct. 
When Matthew Coleman got to the U.S.-Mexico border, authorities there noticed that he didn't have his kids with him. So they radioed into Mexican authorities and said, hey, there's two missing kids, told them the ages of the children. And then Mexican authorities came back and said that they had found two dead children matching their descriptions. They had been left in a ditch near Rosarito. So they threw Matthew Coleman into a interview room, read him his Miranda of rights, which he waived and recorded a conversation. According to the agents that interviewed Matthew Coleman, he confessed to murdering his children and he said that he had used a spear fishing gun. So a lot of what we know about this case comes from the criminal complaint that was later published and publicized by the DOJ. But in that complaint, it says that Matthew Coleman told agents that, quote, he believed his children were going to grow into monsters, so he had to kill them. He described firing a spear gun into the heart of one of his children. And then he described the other child not dying right away. So he had to move the spear around, cutting his hand in the process. According to the criminal complaint, Matthew Coleman had some entries on his hand that match that description. And here's where QAnon comes in. The criminal complaint reads, quote, Matthew Coleman explained that he was enlightened by QAnon and Illuminati conspiracy theories and was receiving visions and signs revealing that his wife, who is uh, annotated here as AC, possessed serpent DNA and had passed it on to his children. Matthew Coleman said that he was saving the world from monsters. Later on, it goes to say that Matthew Coleman was asked whether he knew what he did was wrong, but Matthew Coleman said that he knew it was wrong, but quote, it was the only course of action that would save the world. So Matthew Coleman scheduled to be arraigned on the charges against him at the end of the month. Presumably, he will enter a plea of guilty or not guilty, although he's already confessed to this. And this isn't the first murder associated with QAnon. It's one of several, not to mention kidnappings, violent attacks, and a terrorism charge. But it's grisly nonetheless. This is about the worst story in the world. And it's, I mean, it's just horrific. And the parallels to other QAnon killings are just really striking. You mentioned the serpent DNA. There was a man, I believe, in Washington a couple of years ago who killed his brother with a sword because he believed he had reptilian DNA. Like, what draws people who might already be unstable to a theory like QAnon? You know, I, I think there's a host of possibilities. There's about a million different on-ramps to a conspiracy theory like QAnon that people can take. But I think that QAnon, you know, as ridiculous and objectively dumb as it is, offers a kind of like fantasy that in rare instances like this, people that are already having some sort of mental instability and demons tormenting them of sorts kind of gravitate to, or it's something that at the very least can exacerbate something that is potentially already going on. Yeah. Sounds like QAnon can like act as a crutch for people who need it. And I was just thinking about mercifully a slightly lighter note about how the Mike Lindell symposium is sort of like this last crutch for people who want to believe that the election was stolen. I was wondering if we could sort of transition into the symposium, because I know that's something you kept your eye on. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners what exactly that was. So Mike Lindell, Pillow Maven, Pillow King, 
consider myself a bit of a pillow maven, but yeah, he's at a different <laughs> level. <laughs> anyway, he, he's this crack addict turned businessman turned pillow salesman turned, I guess, informal advisor to the president in those final days, uh, which is a hell of a story. But Mike Lindell has really emerged over the past few years in the Trump movement, kind of slowly and then all at once as kind of a unexpected gladiator figure of sorts. He's the one who's slamming his foot down. When all the advertisers leave Fox, Mike Lindell says, screw you, I'm staying with Fox. When everybody else is starting to move on and thinking about, okay, here comes the Biden administration. He says, hold on, we've got voter fraud, no way Trump lost. And then pulls his ad money from Fox. So he's kind of over this period of time for a certain audience developed a reputation as a fighter or the person who's willing to stand up and very loudly proclaim in influential places the type of things that they have been led to believe because of whatever dog shit they're reading on the internet, right? (laughs) So Mike Lindell in that role became this big champion of voter fraud conspiracy theory, saying that the machines used to collect elections were hacked by the Chinese Communist Party. An important footnote on that is he's not wasting his time with any of the patina of stuff that others are saying, talking about quote unquote illegal votes when they're lumping the conspiracy theories in with this horse shit that a lot of these pandemic era allowances and permissions for people to vote in certain ways were quote unquote illegal, even though they weren't. He's not wasting his time with talking about allegedly illegal votes. Yeah, he's not trying to like win on a, a legalism in the Supreme Court. He's like, the Chinese hacked the packets. He is saying the Chinese government and other foreign regimes hacked the election to swing it to Biden. That's what he's saying. Yeah, because as long as I've been alive, there's been conservative institutions like very powerful and quote unquote respected ones, right? That after every time a Republican loses or there's an election disappointment, they come out and they say, actually, there's dead people on the voter rolls. And actually, there's blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that shit as long as I've been alive, right? But Mike Lindell is going full tilt boogie on this. And apparently the election was hacked. And he called all these people after months of promising proof and hyping up all this material that he claimed that he had to South Dakota. And they all gathered in this like veterans memorial hall type place. And the promise was that over the course of three days, Mike Lindell would reveal all this information and data that he had. And it would be so convincing that there would be no other option but to reconsider the legitimacy of the election and so on and so forth, have Donald Trump reinstated as president. And that didn't happen. It's what, August 17th, now that we're reporting? <laughs> but- Did you live stream this whole thing, Jared? Did you melt your brain and kind of like affix your eyeballs to this as it went on? I couldn't make myself watch all 72 hours of it just for my own mental health. And also it just got really repetitive after a while. So I kind of had an idea of what was being said anyway. But I think I subjected to myself to about like 30 of those 72 hours and spent a nice weekend away from the internet. I mean, what's funny with the repetitive part is definitely like as somebody that's kind of fascinated by Lindell, it's that like he never like pulled together an argument. There's never really like I don't think he's ever really figured out what it is that he's 
like advocating or like arguing for like it's just kind of like he really doesn't think that Trump lost the election and he's really sure that the whatever malfeasance happened in this way he's just like he doesn't know anything about any of the things that he's talking about and so he's just sort of taking and as somebody that has watched a lot of of sports programming on TV like I respect this move a lot where he just is sort of starting to talk and then like going until he figures out what it is he's talking about which is like the Stephen A. Smith method too where you like start off with like a deep sigh and you act upset (laughs) and then like but you can see the gears turning where it's like like all right what am i upset at like kirk cousins for right now and then like you have to figure it out during the course of the monologue like lindell just does that over like a 72 hour period uninterrupted by sleep or food if he can get it down to like 10 minutes he could be a great youtuber because there's like a whole genre of youtube guys who like click on an article hit record and then have like 10 things that they kind of sort of care about and Every conversation is an act of like making some kind of emotional appeal to get back to one of those points. It's like the laziest shit in the world. But Mike, if he could just get his showtime down a little bit, he could absolutely just like dominate Tim Pool on YouTube. He works on an epic scale, though. That's what makes Mike Lindell different. That and the fact that, as Felix said on Chapo, he has the same voice as Santa Claus. (laughs) (laughs) This whole era is like is a gift to like the occasional man who does have the willpower to just keep talking for three uninterrupted hours. Like that's the Trump monologue format. He just talks until he maybe lands on a point and no one's going to interrupt him. Mike Lindell is the direct error to that. Just winding. Donald Trump is kind of like the Francis Ford Coppola of that medium of that (laughs) method of public talking. Whereas Mike Lindell is kind of like the Sam Peckinpah of that. It's way grittier, it's darker, it's way more graphic and intense than anything that Donald Trump could cobble together in a stump speech. The Lindell thing that I have enjoyed in this case is the idea of like the process that he sees all of this going through. Like the idea of that like it starts in like a VFW hall in South Dakota, but eventually it winds up with the Supreme Court making a decision that overturns. Like there's a lot of, of intermediate steps there like to get from from the VFW hall or the Grange Hall or wherever it was to a nine to nothing Supreme Court ruling that like he just cannot be bothered with that shit. Like it's not important to him. He's an ideas man. The more and more that I've spoken to Lindell about this, the more I get the sense that he almost believes that the Supreme Court kind of acts like traffic court. Like like you just go there with a grievance and then (laughs) banging on the door. Yeah, and then boom, you're, you're in. This is probably because like his experience of the legal system has been like fighting an open container charge in St. Paul, Minnesota, you know, years ago. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, you go, there's like a bunch of guys in Randy Moss jerseys. You see the judge for like two minutes. It's not really that dramatic, actually. He gets up in his Santa Claus voice and he's like, if the cop doesn't show up, you automatically right. win. So <laughs> <laughs> did you hack the packets? You have to tell me if you did. <laughs> Speaking of court stuff, like, so Lindell's Cyber Symposium is 72 hours. It starts off right away, like that morning. So Lindell's involved with this lawsuit against Dominion Voting Systems for going around and telling everybody that these voting systems don't work or they got hacked or whatever. And they're suing him for just gobs and gobs of money. The conference starts out on a note of Dominion filing lawsuits against One America News and Newsmax, who are both there streaming the conference, which is kind of awkward. And then on the second day, like he gets 
like smacked again because district court judge rules that like they file a motion to dismiss this defamation lawsuit and this district court judge is like you know what no let's hear it dominion you can proceed and sue the shit out of these people like after that it just like completely went off the rails and there was like a duck sound that some people that were on the ground there i saw tweeting was saying that like anytime someone on the stage after that point said something that was maybe legally questionable, this like duck quack would go off uh, to <laughs> tell them basically to move off. And they do this in comedy clubs, right? They have like lights they show or something. They were giving them the light? A big hook. <laughs> Mike Lindell be like, that's my time. <laughs> Ron Watkins is next. He's very funny. <laughs> Anyway, uh, tip your waiters. I got to go. (laughs) (laughs) Have a great night, folks. The duck sound is incredible, too. The idea of just like hearing it with increasing frequency as someone is just sort of spinning this. There's sort of like, so they're all right. So they're in the packets like whack. And you're like the the packets like every time you say it, you have to deal with that sound. Really good stuff. I would watch 30 hours of that. It's so beautiful, too, because like people like Lindell, you could fairly describe them as like quacks themselves so it's like it's it's a little on the nose but yeah yeah it's it's a bit it's a bit on point (laughs) like it's not quite like a man like dressed like uncle sam coming and giving him the like sandman sims hook off the stage whenever you start talking but it's like the closest thing you can do to it using an app on your phone so jared as someone who has followed mr lindell and his ilk and their careers for quite some time where does he go next or where has he been saying he's going to go next with this post hyper successful reinstatement symposium yeah it kind of remains to be seen because lindell managed to do something that i almost didn't think was possible at this point anymore which is like damage his reputation among all the people that are still gripping on to this idea that oh god was there actually a backlash to it yeah a bit like i was seeing some this morning this america first audits campaign which is trying to get elections quote unquote audited in all 50 states like really turned on him pretty aggressively in the past couple of days being like lindell is compromised people are saying that like the cia is in lindell's inner circle so like this whole conspiracy land left the conference like wildly disappointed i think i mean there's parts of them right that are going to go forward and basically like that was just the 72 hour church service for the stuff they already believe so they're like feeling good feeling great they go forward but anyone who went there hoping that like okay all this stuff we've been doing this is going to be the proof that justifies it all and it's going to light all our campaigns to you know try to invalidate the election on fire left pretty disappointed and he's just kind of been spiraling ever since that conference going on news programs and accusing like conservative news sites or far right news sites of being like Antifa plots set up by Media Matters, I think is one of the claims that he made. So it's really kind of hard to tell where he goes next. But you also can't discount the fact that Mike Lindell is a big bankroller of sort of far right pro Trump media. So as long as his wallet is still open, I think he'll get the time of day for some people. Oh, and it is open. During the 2020 and then 2021 presidential transition, we reported on how he actually was a big major league funder of pro-Trump efforts to challenge legally or hold rallies against the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. If you call him up, there's a very good chance he's on or just about to board or just getting off his private 
plane. He's throwing money at all these different things. I know he's rich. I know he's loaded. How does anyone have this much money? You don't see billionaires like doing stuff this decadent and burning through the holes in their wallets as much as he does in the effort to fight for what he believes in, which right now is that the election was rigged against Mr. Trump. Swin, if he spends it all, he can't get sued for that money by Dominion. Savvy. Well, I I just wonder, like, how many fucking pillows does this country need, right? Like, (laughs) what is the profit margin on these pillows? Is he making these for a nickel or something? Because, like, this seems like way too much money for a company that's like... How does he have this much money? This is the best fucking pillow you'll ever sleep on, even if it's true. Like, even if it's a good pillow, like, does this, like, really brings home, like, how rich is, like, the Serta family that makes mattresses? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I guess I just assumed if you have, like, a successful pillow concern that you're, like, very comfortable, like, maybe you have, like, a vacation home, but, like, a private jet and tens of millions of dollars to just, like, buy Sidney Powell new scarves every day, like, how... Like, I I don't know, like, there's something about it that like, I know it's not suspect, like, that is just like the way the market works. It's clear that a lot of people really find very comforting to rest their heads on something that is associated with Mike Lindell every night. But it doesn't add up to me. It's just baffling. I agree with we're laughing now. But here in like, three months, just just trust me on this, there's going to be some headline that's like the inventors of Tempur-Pedic mattresses are trying to get to the bottom of 5G cell phone radiation. Well, this is the same deal with Kelly's story about the Ruka dude, the surfer guy that like cashed out to Billabong and then like disappears and 10 years later shows up and is like, Joe Biden is a hologram. (laughs) I guess like maybe having that much money is deranging in itself, but there's something about it. You know, like with Lindell, I think the thing that I've always sort of wondered about, obviously there's plenty of people that are happy to take his money. Like it doesn't really seem like there's a lot of people in his life that are like functioning as guardrails to keep him from fucking up everything. Thing that he has. There have been multiple times where he's conference called me in with someone who is in charge in some way or another with distributing his money or dealing with the technology he and or his company are using or an assistant. But I do not get the sense that these people buy what he's selling. I do not get the sense that they're there for anything except for punching the clock. And you can kind of hear what sounded to me like exasperation in some of their voices that they had to talk to a reporter about this. But I guess it's as long as he's putting on the drinks, like people are still going to be there for him. It's just there's something kind of like and again, that is like sort of Trumpian too, in that sense, that I think that there was always that split, at least at the beginning of his administration, between people who were like, yeah, sure, I'll be secretary of state, but that doesn't mean I'm going to pretend that this guy isn't an asshole. And then like those dudes quickly cycled out and you wound up with people that actually were either maybe not true believers. I don't think anybody that spent a great deal of time around Trump, except for maybe Mike Lindell, emerges like impressed as a result. But there are like, it does seem like there's different ways that people have figured out how to use either that power or that influence or in Lindell's case, that money. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to say that I feel bad for him because he's a real putz, but there is like an extent to which everyone in his life appears to be getting over on him or lying to him in some way or another is like pretty grim, actually. Right. He's kind of the Ed Wood of the MAGA universe. Yeah, right. Everybody's he's like the last port in a storm. Jared, thank you for telling us about the very sad thing and then also the very ridiculous thing. I'm always struck by people that have to do the stuff that you do also coming off as just like normal, high-functioning humans. So you're a remarkable person. 
is what I would say. It's all about balance. On one day, you're looking at a tragedy. On the other day, you are speculating about the wealth of a pillow magnate, right? So <laughs> it's what a country. It's all about balance. <laughs> And now it's time to bring listeners to one of our most cherished segments on this show, Fresh Hell, in which we introduce you to something batshit that's happening in the world that you may not believe is actually happening, but is ongoing nonetheless. Kelly, tell us about Surfwear Nation and how this intersects with efforts to put Donald Trump back in office. All right. Well, throwback. Do you remember Ruka spelled R-V-C-A? It was like a mall brand surfwear company that everybody you knew wore in 2006, even though you lived in like Buffalo, New York, and none of you surfed. David, did you, uh, were you an adherent to this cult? I'm not that type of coastal elite, so I've never experienced the actual uh, Ruka lifestyle. I'm familiar with the brand. I'm assuming, did they sort of like Ruka walked so that Five Below could run? Is that is that fair? Yeah, that's about right. They sold to Billabong. They were like all over <laughs> Paxson. You just absolutely just sitting around and listening to Sublime, that cult. Well, wouldn't you know it, one of Ruka's co-founders was a former pro surfer named Conan Hayes. These days, post that billabong sale, he is onto his second act, which is going in on the Stop the Steal movement. So we reported yesterday that Hayes has been a key figure in on-the-ground efforts to overturn Joe Biden's election victory. Awesome. Definitely going to work. We love having on-the-ground effort, not just posting, but like physically getting in there. Standing near my Mike Lindell. He's the man in the arena. We'll get to that because his tie into Mike Lindell is fun. Um, basically, late last year, a Trump fan filed a lawsuit challenging election results in a Michigan county, which I cannot stress this enough. Trump won that Michigan county. Like there was nothing to challenge, but he did it anyway. And the court said, you know what? Fine, whatever. Like you can go check out the voting machines, make sure there's nothing wrong. The plaintiff said, we are going to have our elections expert, Conan Hayes, go check out these voting machines. So Conan Hayes, former surfer, not an elections guy, goes in, takes pictures of the election machines and starts tweeting them from his anonymous conspiracy account where he talks about QAnon and everything. It's got an amazing name, too. It's, there are so many grace notes in this story that I enjoyed. It's like pure Q adjacent gobbledygook. His account is, is called We Are Risen. Is that right? Yeah, we have With risen. underscores? We have risen. Terrific. You sure have, man. Yeah, it's it's just a real ascent from, I think he sold his company for $30 million. So, I mean, if, if I ever landed in that kind of money, you would just never hear from me again. But he's putting himself out there. I had billabong money. I would definitely not have an anonymous account from which I posted Q shit. That is true. Yeah, no, it's funny. For me, the dream of getting rich is getting offline but that's not the case with everyone. So he was tweeting these dissected Dominion voting machines with conspiracy captions. He was a subcontractor on the ground at this Arizona audit. And now he seems like he might have been involved in a breach of voting machines in Mesa County, Colorado, which is the latest hope for Stop the Steal folks. I, at this point, do not parse the claims, only just how is this going to affect my week? They need to audit Maryland. Like before this is over, <laughs> they need to figure out 
how they lost Maryland and use the talking point that Maryland has a Republican governor. So how is it possible Donald Trump could have lost the heartland of Maryland? Audit Brooklyn, you never know. That was one of my favorite, like, super dumb guy gambits before the election where they were like, I'm in California, okay? And everyone I talk to is voting for Trump. Like, I think you'll be surprised. It's like you live in Orange County. (laughs) Your only friend is Brett Easton Ellis. Right. Like, a pretty, like, a guy who had a, a good major league baseball career and a terrible posting career named Aubrey Huff put up a map, like one of those, like sort of like, here's like the Huff projections for the election. And it was like Trump somehow getting like 790 electoral votes, like Canada votes for him or whatever. But he had California in there. And it's the same deal where it's like, you don't like everyone that you talk to has played for the Padres. Like you don't have friends that weren't like that didn't appear in like the 2006 Tops Baseball Series one set. So like it's not a representative sample of what Californians want. So you mentioned Mike Lindell, and I'm so glad you did because Conan Hayes almost derailed Mike Lindell's cyber symposium, which- Oh, how could he? That well-produced event that was never in danger of falling apart at any moment. No, everything was going swimmingly until the Rika, Rika, whatever, I don't know how to pronounce it, man showed up. How do you derail a Mike Lindell event? What force is powerful enough to blow that one off its axis? It's actually incredible because Mike Lindell is being sued for like a billion dollars or something by Dominion, but there was actually a legal threat that briefly threatened to shut it down. And that's when Ron Watkins, the eight coon guy who some people say is Q, his lawyer called him like in the middle of a presentation was like, Ron, you might be sharing stolen documents and we need you to stop doing that. So Ron comes out and he's like, uh, guys, I think uh, it's possible that Conan Hayes stole this material, so we might have to <laughs> shut this down. And then they came back on. They're like, no, 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 Conan didn't steal it. He just took photocopies. It's totally fine. So the show went on. Again, like it would be funnier if I thought that they would like ever stop, that there'd be a moment where they'd be like, okay, like Mike Lindell being like, well, I guess you've proven your point and he didn't win the election. That day ever came, that would be fine. But as it is, it's like, it's still part of the the comedy of it is that they're just going to keep doing this until all of us are dead. The closest any of us are going to get to the My Pillow founder doing that is that after the conference really started to collapse and that quote unquote cyber expert who had been working on the Lindell pro-Trump team came out and told the Washington Times of all places that, oh yeah, the data doesn't actually prove what Mr. Lindell and others are saying. It proves that the election was stolen from Mr. Trump. After that came out and there was sort of a cascading effect of schadenfreude, If you were a reporter trying to get in touch with Mr. Lindell, blowing up his phone, calling him and texting him, you would know that in the past, it does not take that much time at all to get something out of him defending his ridiculous, conspiratorial and incorrect claim. There was a protracted period of silence when that came out, when people were trying to reach Mike for, I don't know, about 20 hours, give or take, where it was just really hard to get him on the phone to start spinning why this wasn't what the Washington Times and others were reporting. That is the closest you are ever going to get to contrition from Mike and others on this topic. And of course, in the time since, he has evolved to the position of going on air or on podcasts, telling people that, no, 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 none of that matters. The data is still legit. Because of course, that's where he was going to end up. I love the idea of him like in seclusion, like Jeffrey Lebowski and the big Lebowski in the West Wing, just sitting in a big chair, listening to like, I'm proud to be an American over and over again and staring into the (laughs) fireplace. 
On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.